Welcome to the Deep Collaboration Podcast. In this series, we talk to people who do important work in helping agile teams get things done together in smarter and faster ways. My name is Max Andocker, and today I'm joined by my co-founder, Till Peeper, in talking to Dragan Stepanovic, who is a long-time practitioner in extreme programming. Dragan, can you start by telling us a bit more about your background and how you got into extreme programming in the first place? Sure. I'm very excited to be here and, and thanks for having me. Yeah, the, the way that I started with extreme programming is kind of interesting story. I guess maybe even everyone from the XP community would have interesting story to, to share because it's not really like typical way to get get into it. But when I started working my first job, I, I felt that I was, wasn't really good at programming and it wasn't really imposter syndrome. It was real. Yeah, at one point I figured out, okay, I should do something about that. So what I did is I went to, I think, Amazon and I looked for top five programming books. And a couple of books from the XP world came up, Refactoring from Martin Fowler, uh, working effectively with legacy code from Michael Federer's Ken Beck's work on TDD and XP and stuff like that. So yeah, that was kind of my first contact with, with XP. And from then on, it's just been kind of a journey through this rabbit hole. I'm in the industry for quite a long time now and in the community as well. I'm still very much in, in love in this topic and also the, the way that it helps people find joy in work through being able to co-create the things together and work together and, and building kind of individual relationships through through this kind of way of working. Yes, in the last also couple of years, I've been very much interested in the theory of constraints, idea and lean and, and systems thinking. And yeah, during the uh, last couple of years, I've been trying to figure out where are these connections between these different seemingly disjunctive worlds that are there and trying to connect these things. Awesome. It's great having you on the show, Dragon. Dragon, I think the way we got connected is to our friend Austin Chatwick. And I think you were on this podcast. You talked about um, the study that you did around async and overall code reviews. Like, and, and I think you have a very strong opinion on how to do them right. And you don't just have an opinion, but you actually did research around that. Would you mind telling us about the study that you did and, and what your beliefs are around code reviews? Sure. So when I started my career, I've been mostly working in the environments that have been working a bit different way than we get to see in the industry, like in terms of the majority uh, of the industry. I would say I, like pull requests and async code reviews, as we see them today, are maybe north of even 95% present in the industry, which is really kind of interesting. So I had this kind of cognitive dissonance in a sense from that experience. And I got into a topic related to Lean, yeah, five plus years ago, I would say. And there are a couple of concepts coming from Lean and also theory constraints, which I found really interesting, connecting to extreme programming and this uh, way of working, which is um, async-based code, code reviews. I was really curious to understand a couple of things. One thing was engagement um, that we get to see on the pull request, and the other thing is the wait time, that is a metric from and flow efficiency, uh, which are the metrics from, from Lean. The reason why I got into these two sets of measurements or was interested in those is because I had a hunch that the synchronous collaboration and the verbal giving verbal feedback might be kind of different than what we get to see in these high latency, low throughput environments, uh, which are related to the PR based async workflow. And uh, why? Because just for, for listeners who are not familiar with this, but I think lots of people are, PR based async code reviews 
are this idea of, let's say, two developers and one developer is picking up the task from a backlog, working on that one, the other developer is taking some other work. And first developer, they're doing some coding. At one point, they figure out, okay, I think I'm done. So I need to get uh, feedback on the work that they uh, did. So they invite other developers from their team to review their, their work. And uh, what ha usually happens is that the other people, because they're working on their own things in the mean, uh, that they started in the meantime, they're not able to respond immediately, right? And because of that, the first developer that is waiting for the review, since they're waiting, you know, no one is really interested in twiddling their thumbs most of their day waiting for, for a response. So what they do is they pull in another thing or they start working on something else. Once the, the reviewers become available, they comment uh, or give a, a, a provide a review and feedback for, for first developer. Then the first developer is not able to immediately react because they're busy with something else that is pulled in in the meantime. So they go back and forth in this like ping pong motion with quite high latency. It depends on the environment, but like compared to immediate feedback, it tends to be quite high latency. And then at one point they converge on a solution with which both of them are satisfied and they uh, merge the PR and yeah, deploy it. So that's kind of the environment of this, uh, of the PR based async workflows. And I was really curious to understand because the PRs and the feedback that you're providing on PRs is usually in a written form. So, you know, you open up a PR, you go through whatever, GitLab, GitHub, whichever solution you're using for this purpose and provide a feedback in a written form. And that also goes both ways. So I was curious because of a written form being very expensive medium of communication. So uh, it takes a long time to write a comment. And it's also a question if you're able to provide all of the feedback that you wanted to provide compared to the verbal feedback. I was really curious to see the engagement on, on the PRs. And for this reason, so for uh, written feedback being expensive. And the other thing was that this high latency between the actors, I was really curious to see how does this thing also affects engagement? Because, you know, uh, I have this analogy, if you have a phone call with someone and there's a delay uh, between, uh, between the actors, then the conversation tends to fade out sooner than can be their the latency. So that, that's kind of idea about the engagement, this kind of having a hunch around this because, because of this history of mine, so to say, experience. And the other thing was uh, trying to understand also the wait time. So the wait time metric is the ideal, um, as I mentioned, coming from Lean. And in Lean, we tend to focus not on the like uh, individual utilization, so how much percentual-wise are people working, but we are focused because it's a wrong fo focus to have. We are focusing on this work item flowing through our system and trying to figure out how can we get it as soon uh, out of the door. And we can connect this also with Agile. That's the thing that we want to do, minimize the lead time to make an impact, right? With this high utilization, like individual utilization, in Lean they call it resource utilization because Lean comes from manufacturing. Uh, that resource is not the word that I would use for, for knowledge work, of course. But being uh, optimizing for individual efficiency actually hurts a lot this flow efficiency, so this lead time to get things done. And uh, there is a metric called the flow efficiency, which also measure that, trying to figure out you know, how much time in this lead time had we spent 
on effectively working on this item and how much of time of its life cycle have we spent on had this item spent waiting for someone's attention. So I was curious to see what's the wait time for these pull requests, meaning how much of a time is this pull request waiting for someone's attention because people are busy with other things and they're pulling in even more things, meaning increasing working process. So yeah, that was kind of our reasoning behind uh, why I wanted to see these these metrics. So the interesting thing that they like they discovered Actually, there's one thing related to the engagement, which I think is very intuitive, especially for the folks that have been in the industry for some time and working with pull request, is that the bigger the pull request gets, the lower engagement it tends to have. So I have this quote, which says, never had 300 plus lines of code pull request that didn't look good to me. Meaning the idea behind it is that I've seen it so many times in my career, like seeing a big pull request and people just, you know, giving up and saying, okay, I'm not able to give, you know, a lot of feedback. In, I mean, the thing has already been done. We are not really able to build the quality in. So, you know, we're going to try to rework it at some other uh, point in time, which never comes, of course. So what they do is they just, you know, click plus one or looks good to me or LGTM, which is a shorthand for that. And the thing just goes. So the engagement goes exponentially down as we increase the size of the PR. And that's the thing that was really intuitive. The surprising systemic insight that they got that they didn't expect actually to see related to the wait time. So there's, there was a lot of wait time, like three plus times compared to the processing time, so to say, in, in this workflow. But the thing that really surprised me is that the fact that as we decrease the size of the PR, the wait time per line of code goes exponentially up. And my interpretation of that is that actually the system is telling us that the cost of code review per line of code is going exponentially up. So the smaller PR you have, the more percentually wise wait time you're going to incur in this process, which means that the waste in the whole process, because the wait time is waste from the lean terms, goes exponentially up as it is the, the, the batch size or the PR size. And I have this analogy, which is really interesting that I think lots of folks have experienced it. When you have a test shoot that is quite slow, let's say that it takes 20 minutes to get the feedback from tests, you are not going to really run the test shoot after every line of code change, right? Because it doesn't make economic sense. So in order to make the wisest economic decision, you're going to increase the amount of changes that you introduce to the system before running the test shoot, right? So, and that's the idea of the transaction cost being high and people trying to to make the wisest or um, most the most or the soundest uh, economic decision, and they increase the batch size, which also means that when we find an error, we have a bigger piece of code where we have to find an error in. So it takes us longer time to troubleshoot to understand where is the problem because we did a lot of the things without without feedback, and there are lots of problems with with the uh, increasing the batch size. So we want to stay in the smaller batch size spectrum, smaller PRs. So the whole industry now agrees on that, our majority of the industry, and which is a really great thing to see. But on the other hand, so the, the we lose throughput a lot on this on this part of the of the spectrum with smaller PRs in if we keep the same way of working that we're doing, this async code reviews. So on the engagement side, on the big PRs, we're losing quality because we're not able to get the feedback. And if we're not able to get the feedback, we're not able to build in the quality. And on the smaller PRs, we're losing the throughput. And there's this, you know, evergreen dilemma, speed versus quality or in DevOps throughput versus stability. But 
we want to stay in the smaller PRs, then it's a question, okay, how do you solve this problem, right? So the way to go about it is actually how do we keep the cost of code review per line of code constant as we decrease the size of the PR? And what they discovered is that actually actors in the system, as they decrease the size of the PR, need to get exponentially closer and closer in time in order to not lose the throughput. What this means is that they have to react as they decrease the size of the PR, average size of the PR, they have to react exponentially faster. And in order to do that, they have to become exponentially more available. So I'm not able to react fast if I'm doing something else, right? And this cost is way more higher on the smaller PRs than on the bigger PRs. So how do we keep this cost to cover you a constant as we decrease the size of the PR? Well, that's the idea of people getting closer and closer in time, and which actually, for me, naturally leads to these co-creation patterns, um, which are, at least I call them that way, pair programming and mob programming, because with these ways of working, which is sync ways of working, you get to provide feedback immediately. And because of that, you're able to get a feedback after each line of code change. So we can think about PR in this sense as one line of code change that is reviewed immediately. So as we decrease the size of the PR, this way of working actually keeps the cost of code review per line of code at a minimum, actually zero, because we're waiting zero time. So we're able to have small batches and we're able not to lose throughput. Plus the engagement is even higher than with the small PR's async workflow because the feedback is given in a verbal form. So it's much richer and at least we're not losing the, the quality, I would say, in that sense. We're able to have both quality and, uh, and the throughput uh, in that way. And yeah, it's kind of a parallel universe to this other way of working, but we're forced to make a trade-off and this other way of working where actually we don't have to make this trade-off because the underlying assumption is, is kind of flawed. And I find it really interesting because it kind of reminded me of the work that folks that wrote um, Accelerate book, uh, so Nicole Forsgren and, and other people, is that they, and actually in this book, they, they did um, a research that took, I think, five plus years. And the thing that they found out is actually that this idea of throughput versus stability is flawed. So you have either both throughput and stability or neither throughput nor stability. And I found it really interesting because it kind of connects uh, to, to this study that I've been I've been doing. So yeah, that's kind of um, the the idea and some of the conclusions and surprising insights that they got out of this uh, study. No, I think uh, that, that's fascinating. And just to to connect with with the intro, so you are an extreme programming user. I think you've been using it for a couple of years, right? And I guess there's you do that not just for the sake of code reviews, but because you think it produces better better code. Is that a fair understanding? I mean, do you assume putting code reviews aside or code quality maybe in terms of productivity that pair programming is also making engineering teams more productive as a whole. Let's say you have 10 engineers, five of them, you know, they have five groups of five, five pairs. They they write code. They are more productive than 10 individual engineers that do async code reviews. Yeah. So, I mean, if we, that's the kind of idea, what do we try to optimize for? If you optimize for individual efficiency, which actually doesn't have to relate, uh, it doesn't relate to the outcomes that you want to achieve, then, you know, we might say, okay, this is more efficient. But if you focus on the flow efficiency, then co-creation patterns and synch synchronous works is way more effective and way more productive. 
because we incur way less uh, waste with it. So that's kind of the way that I see it. Depends on what you're trying to optimize for. And my opinion and, uh, is that we should definitely always try to optimize for deploy efficiency because this also means shorter lead time in terms of the value to the customers and being able to get the feedback from the customers and being able to iterate faster, which is the thing that we want to achieve, right? No, that's 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 awesome. And maybe a little more on the study. Like I think you and we, we might be able to show a few uh, charts and a great slide deck that you created once we publish this podcast. But just like, could you talk about some... Like, like the instrumentation that you've built to determine, you know, the best way of, of doing things. It's not just that you, 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 you have theories, right? You can prove it based on statistics that you've put out of the system, like you said, like wait times and so on and so forth. And yeah, comments on based on lines of codes and so on. Yeah, so in this slide deck, I have a detailed explanation of the metrics that I've used and the way the definitions that they use and the way they calculate it. So lots of the things uh, or a couple of things are having approximations. So I'm kind of very aware of, 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 of these. And it depends, the accuracy of the results depends on some of these assumptions that are behind that. Uh, yes, but, but the way that I went about it is I figure out like what is like in terms of this lead time for this pull request from the first commit until it's being merged, when is the processing time and when is the, feed, the feedback time or the wait time that is there. And the way that I went about it is that the wait time is actually, so when I think about it, the typical workflow, uh, typical way of working um, when it comes to the PR-based async workflow, developer starts working on this item and then at one point they figure out, okay, I think I'm done, now I need to get feedback, right? And that's actually when I, uh, the approximation that I used for the wait time to start ticking, right, until we merge this pull request. But uh, it can happen that in this time there were lots of comments on this pull request, there were lots of follow-up commits which could indicate more free work. So if I use this whole period as a wait time, the approximation tends to be less accurate, right? So it really depends on the amount of engagement that I see after this point in time and the number of follow-ups commits, which would indicate the amount of free work that is there. So yeah, that's kind of a thing um, that was important there in terms of the processing time also this idea of from the starting of development till this point in time when we ask for a feedback, it's also very dependent on, let's say I can have two commits, right? Um, before I ask for a review, but first commit is 4 p.m. one day and the second commit is 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, right? So I can calculate this whole thing as a processing time, but in fact, there was a huge gap of the wait time there because this person had committed some work and then went home and then Tomorrow, when they get back, got back, back to work, they continue working. So I calculate this, calculated that as a, way, a processing time. It actually is it's not. So it depends on these on these uh, things. Like when do I, do I see commits uh, in terms of the timeline and, and stuff like that. But the biggest insight, the biggest conclusion that I mentioned about the wait time per line of code going exponentially up as we decrease the size of the PR, actually relies only on wait time, which tends to be very um, or way more accurate than the processing time. And it's related to the amount of waste that we tend to see. So yeah, those are some of the things. But um, anyone interested in, in this um, can check out the slide deck. And I'm also preparing a set of the articles uh, explaining the kind of idea about the metrics and the definition of those in, in details. And if I'm not wrong, you actually published the tool that enables folks to do their own analysis on their own workflows, right? So yes, the tool is going to be, I think, kind of available soon for, for people to check out, like just to see, you know, how the results for their repositories look like. So yeah, the initial idea from my side was, you know, like doing this study. I mean, it started very, very much as a lightweight, you know, just 
but just being curious about seeing these uh, two, two things. But the idea is actually how do we figure out if there's any kind of data-informed way to, to, to visualize the way that we work and could it inform the way that we, you know, should we change or consider other ways of working. And uh, yeah, that was kind of my primary motivation to enable teams to, to see in some data-informed way how, how the results of, the, of their current process looks like and perhaps influence, if that can influence their ability to consider some other ways of working, so to say. Yeah. And, and jumping ahead in terms of conclusions, like, do you assume that all teams find the similar results or do you think it's just it's a matter of preferences or you know, team structures or so? Yeah, that's really that's really a good question. So the the thing is that you know if people if we optimize for for individual uh, individual efficiency, flow efficiency is going to go down uh, no matter what. So it's one to one relationship, right? I mean, there's a there's a theory behind that from math, which is called uh, Little's law, or coming from Q and theory, which explains you know why if you increase the working process the uh, cycle time and the throughput, that cycle time goes up and the throughput goes down, right? So if you work in this way, there's almost, it's impossible to not have this kind of, I mean, to, to not incur this exponential cost as you decrease the size of the PRs. If you want to keep it constant as you decrease the size of the PR, you would have to change the reaction time of the actors in the system so they get closer and closer. And at one point, as I mentioned, they are going to get so close in time together, so moving from this async to a sync way, that they are going to you know, have this online tool that they're using for publishing the work and giving a feedback on it as a bottleneck in this process because they, then they spend most of the time loading up this tool, loading up the context, trying to understand what the other person has been doing, you know, downloading code, running tests or whatever, providing com uh, feedback. And instead of that, you know, they might even say, um, or they should say, you know, why don't we just jump on a call? So I'm immediately there when you make changes and, you know, able to provide you, provide you immediate feedback. So, yes, but the, the I mean, I, I would be really, really, really surprised if people work in this way and not incur this exponential curve. That's kind of my, because the, just the idea of individual efficiency and loading up the working process, you're not able to not lose the throughput. So it's almost, I mean, it's, it's guaranteed that you're going to lose the throughput because of this context switching and the costs of context switching and not being able to provide feedback immediately and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I understand that it's a, it's a strong opinion, right? But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of really curious to see if there's any way that I, I would get an explanation that this, this isn't the case. And I'm really open to, to that really, because I'm kind of really curious to, to see this conversation from multiple perspectives. I mean, there's one interesting development in the last one and a half years, which is that teams are increasingly remote, right? You could also say fully remote in, in many cases. And that means you might also stretch uh, teams in terms of time zones, right? You've worked for major European startups. I'm sure you've worked with folks that are elsewhere, Max and I in Europe, incidentally, right now the team is in the US. So the more distributed you are, also, you know, east-west geographically, the harder it gets to, to pair program because, you know, time overlap is limited and so on. How do you deal with that? Do you build teams that are co-located, even though remote, or did you find a way to, to deal with that? Yeah, so the, that's, that's a really good question. And I think that, like, if you think about what are the things that we should optimize for, having in mind this delay uh, that I talked about in, in the async way of working, 
and different time zones, then I would optimize creating the team boundaries around the time zones, right? So trying to have a team co-located inside of a single time zone, being able to provide this particular vertical slice or domain or how we split the teams to, to the customers. And of course, so many companies are you know, having teams in different time zones. And if you depend on someone from other time zone, of course, that you're not able to you know, pair or more program with them or, or have a call because they're sleeping while you're working. And that's fine. But I would, in terms of the heuristics around defining the boundaries of the team, I would definitely look at uh, trying to collocate the teams inside of a, if, uh, on a single time zone, so to say. So we have less of this latency because when you think about the cumulative effect of this over a period of, of, of time and KL in terms of the number of engineers or the people that you have in this process, it, the, the, the amount of waste is just enormous. It's compared to the effective time or processing time that you spend the processing time becomes completely negligible because the wait time tends to dominate the, the whole wait time. Perhaps if we stay on the same topic, do you have a preference for in-office work over remote work? Or do you believe that the right tooling is in place already? You just need to be co-located in terms of time zone to make it work. Yeah. So I think uh, like the, the whole pandemic brought up really kind of important question about remote work, right? And being and, and remote work being accessible for more people than it was before. And I think that's a really good conversation to have. I personally prefer lots of the in-person collaboration. So to see if there's a possibility for that, but I see lots of the advantages also from working remotely, right? Being able to stay during the whole day with my family and uh, you know being there uh, also available for some of the things and you know spending more time with them during the breaks and, and stuff like that. So I think both, both sides are really important to consider, but I think that there's lots of, as, as you know, lots of uh, work being done in this space related to the remote work and providing tooling for having effective collaboration while working remotely. And I think I think seems like the, the industry will be moving in that direction. And yes, the, the other thing also that, that I figure out is that lots of people have a thought about going remote, which means fully async, which is not really the shouldn't be the case. So remote doesn't and shouldn't imply async work per se. You know, like talking from this perspective that I talk related to the the study that I did and the the opinions that I have. So I think like that having a remote work while working in sync can be a really nice sweet spot to have. Do you have any opinions about hybrid work? A lot of organizations are announcing, you know, letting their employees work from home two to three days a week. Do you see any pros and cons with that setup? So I think there's a challenge if, if the team is, is doing, so if you have a team and a couple of people are working remote a couple of days per week, it's really difficult to, to be in sync with the rest of the team that is in the office. So if you have a single person that is working remotely, I think it's worthwhile for the whole team to, to work remotely because the, the amount of context that are, they are not able, the remote person that is not able to grasp because of, because of being remote and lots of conversation going on inside of the office in person, is that they are not, it's unquestionable that they are part of the team anymore. So I think it's really important to have this, this in mind uh, and to kind of shape the, the policies when it comes to this hybrid work in a way to consider this, uh, right? So, but I think there's, you know, there, there are also 
people that, that like to work remotely. There are people that like to work face-to-face, -face, right, co-located. And I think it's important really to, to think about this when, when covering the policies, especially in a, in a given single team, because like if you have this difference in the policy across the teams, that's fine. But if it's in a single team, then lots of this nucleus, the nucleus is kind of jeopardized, so to say, because of this context loss that is incurred with part of the team being in the office, part of the team being uh, remotely. So, yeah. Of course, we, we all know now that you have a strong preference for, for certain workflows. How do you see this, see that beyond engineering? Like, do you have views on, you know, Slack or, you know, Loom video recording? I mean, uh, screencasts are, is very popular for async communication in teams right now. Do you have similar views that sync should be the default for non-engineering teams? Um, well, the, these pattern, patterns the, of communication that I talked about, I think they're applicable to any work where you need to get feedback. And now we can ask, you know, how much of work do we have that we don't have, have to get feedback, right? So, especially in the knowledge work that we have. So I think there's a lots of opportunity there for improving the workflow and the productivity if we go more into the sync mode. Uh, now, of course, there are lots of other things related to, you know, Zoom fatigue, how long are you there on the, on the call and stuff like that, that needs also to be considered. But there's also other thing that I noticed is that lots of people are not, like, don't feel like they would like to do the work that they do this way, because in the same way that I think that most of the people that have been working, especially in the in engineering, have been, so to say, professionally brought up in individual, working individually. And I'm really curious how would, how would the world, world look like had we, had these engineers been brought up in a different kind of environment? So is this really a kind of personal preference, but is it like personal preference orthogonal to the experience that they had? Or is this a personal preference that has been shaped up by the experience that they had, which is individual work from the start. So I think it's also kind of worth kind of trying to understand this or, or um, like the, the needs of people. Is it really that or is it more how we did it all the time? As I said, I think, yeah, 95% of the industry is, is, is working in this way. So yeah, I, I think it's also so important to, to have that in mind. But yeah, I think that, that hybrid way of working is really important alternative now to have. But at the same time, I think it doesn't exclude in any way, like moving to async way of working and lots of the fields and expertise aside from engineering can really benefit from shortening the feedback loops in order to get immediate feedback. I mean, I'm not even going like with this study that they did, I'm not even going into the psychological safety, building the trust with face-to-face -face communication and stuff like that. Because when you go async, fully async, you're interacting to, to other humans to some proxy, online proxy, which is some tool, you know, I'm writing to a username on GitHub. I'm not able to see their expression when I'm providing this, when they're reading the feedback, when they're hearing the feedback, you know, and stuff like that. So really interesting point there, like for the teams that, that want to, to build psychologically safe environment is that they have to have ability to show vulnerability as well and to build the trust. And the thing that I noticed is that teams that do lots of co-creation, these patterns when they work in sync together, face-to-face, -face, whatever face-to-face -face means, you know, over the, over the network or in the, in the office, is that they get to have higher levels of psychological safety because they get to 
have a chance to expose their, themselves, which means that vulnerability, they are able to build the vulnerability acceptance in the, in the, in the team and being able to build the trust. And the other thing is also the teams that have high levels of trust and psychological safety tend to co-create more. So there is this positive reinforcing feedback loop there in place, which is really important when it comes to team cohesion. And I'm sure that you know also the like a long um, study that Google did related to the psychological safety and what kind of effects it has on the on the teams. So I think it's uh, very important to to consider that. It's just like thinking about like what does the delay in our communication mean to all of these things? I mean, it's really difficult to connect. But when you go from uh, one thing to the other thing to the other thing, then you figure out, you know, this actually has really a huge ripple effects on all of the things that we do, that we do. And on that topic, in your experience, how do you overcome some of this resistance that you might find in some teams where they're not used to working in these synchronous ways? Do you have examples from the past when you've overcome such challenges? So it's difficult, definitely. It's, it's very difficult to, to change the way of working because, as I mentioned, like, most of the industry is working in this way. And I tend to connect it with this sentence that was popular in the 80s, I think. Nobody got fired for buying a, a IBM. So I think it reduces the risk as well, like staying in, like moving together with the rest of the industry. It provides some level of safety, right? I mean, like 80s, if you bought, uh, if you were uh, procuring vendors for your service and you bought something else than IBM, which was very dominant at that point in time, you had to explain, you had to answer the questions, right? And I think the same thing is also happening now because uh, especially when we have this, this way of reasoning about co-creation of multiple people working on the same thing, like wasting n times more time, it's really kind of mechanistic, mechanistic uh, way of, of reasoning about this thing, which is way more complex than that, involving all of the feedback loops that happen in knowledge work and stuff like that. So I think there's there's this point of nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. And I think until the also big players like FANG uh, companies start understanding this, and I, and I saw already a couple of like movements in, in this space from them, I think lots of the industry is going to fall off uh, them. So that's also the thing that, that is related to the timing itself until the kind of industry picks up on this idea and, and starts reevaluating and questioning this. But on the other hand, it's also, as I mentioned, it's difficult because when you get to work in an async way, or you know, when you think about the pull request, the way that you work with, with someone else is through some online tool, you're, you're connecting to some other username on a GitHub and stuff like that. But lots of the things, like you can hide a lot of the trust problems and vulnerabilities. I even saw lots of the teams couple of teams that have been using pull requests but because they weren't able to get along when they work together. So it really helps you actually this, you know, it puts the feedback about the team under the rug. And once you move into collaboration mode, you start surfacing this. But these are really important, crucial conversations to have. So I think the team should have this conversation, right? That is like a lurking under the, under the rug. So that's also another difficulty, right? Trying to use these mechanisms to build the trust action in the team. So people have this shared space where they, you know, should try to get along and work together and accept each other as they are, you know, and, and build trust and psychological safety and vulnerability and stuff like that. But it, there's a hump to that, so it's not really, I mean, it's not, if, if it was easy, we would see, it all, see also already that, that move, but it involves a certain level of being ready for that as a team as well in order to, to get over this hump and to move to the next 
parallel universe in terms of the of the high of the performance. Those are some of the things that they tend to see as as challenges uh, when it comes to, to this shift. And especially in the last two years, these teams have already gone through quite a lot, right? I mean, they initially were mostly on-site, at least the big tech companies were all co-located. Then suddenly they were forced to be all remote. Some found it exciting and be more flexible. But then, you know, Zoom became a hot, hot thing. Talked about Zoom fatigue. Suddenly folks noticed, oh, damn it, this is also tiring. So what now? So the next thing was async. So now everyone can disconnect and tries to limit the... The, the sync time for also, you know, good intentions. And we also agree, of course, with Bias as being a vendor of a synchronous collaboration tool, but we think the pendulum might swing back and say, okay, now how can we get this right with the right tools? Because we think it was also swinging towards async because the tools were poor. You know, they are, the, the tools that we had until recently until uh, folks like us came around didn't enable folks to, to collaborate sync as, as much as they should. And now that, that uh, they, they can power that, I think, some teams might, might go back to a more sync process, even though they are, might still be mostly or even entirely remote. Are there things you would expect from tools to, to improve on? I mean, I, I thought when you talked about your study, GitHub and GitLab could, you know, guide people and tell them, hey, your, your commits get too big. You should do a code. You should start a PR, for example, or they should, you know, advise you to jump on a sync session instead of just keep keep adding commits after commit to, uh, to work in progress PR. Are there things that tools can, can improve on? So I think uh, so. I had a chance to check out the um, code screen, and and I think it's it's a really a great idea of actually the way that I perceive it is reduce this transaction cost in terms of getting into the collaboration mode, right? Which is really important because currently, in order to you know when you try to use some other tools, you need to you know create a link and you know type password, share it, and you know blah blah blah. So so it's it's a bit difficult to get into a call, so to say, or to jump into this. I mean. And there's a certain levels of difficulty when it comes to, to that, right? But, you know, I think we can, they're like reducing these transaction costs will help out like moving this experience, right? On the other hand, like thinking about the Zoom fatigue and, you know, getting used to online collaboration and stuff like that, I find it really interesting that like breaks, making regular breaks is really important in order to have a sustainable pace because that's what we want to have. We want to be able to keep working in this way indefinitely. If we're not able to do that, then maybe there's something about our process that we need to change. So then it's a question, you know, are we able somehow to remind people you know, that they should take breaks when they get to collaborate so they can have the sustainable pace so they don't, you know, have, they don't experience much of this fatigue. So that's kind of one of the interesting things that, that uh, I kind of recently thought of uh, when, when it comes to, to that. But I think, like, as you also mentioned, there is so much work in this space, and I'm really glad to see that. Uh, I, I think, like, the world is, I think, like, as I said, the whole pandemic opened up the doors to some discussions that we weren't even able to have beforehand. So, Dragon, when it comes to asynchronous versus synchronous work, I think some people who prefer asynchronous work also say that, you know, it's much easier to get things started. I can do that on my own time and people can answer when they have time. So there's not this lag, you know, where I have to wait for you to be available for me to bring this up. What are your thoughts on that? That's really a really good question because so the way that they see it is that async work actually reduce the cost of starting new work, right? It lowered this hurdle in a sense, because as you said, I'm not I don't need to wait for someone else to be able to uh, to respond to the message or question that they have. But like looking at, again from the individual efficiency, the individual efficiency goes up, but the flow efficiency of the whole 
throughput of the company is going to get down. Why? Because actually um, reducing the cost of starting new work is in lean is called increasing arrival rate. And if the arrival rate is increasing compared to the departure rate, the items leaving the system, the working process is actually going up. And again, tying up back to the Little's Law and queuing theory, as the working process goes up, the cycle times goes up and also the throughput uh, goes down. So like thinking on, on a on team level, you know, that not might be so much worrying, but when you scale this up to the whole organization and you have dozens of teams, and hundreds of people or thousands of people and engineers, you can imagine what kind of effect it has in terms of the throughput of the whole, whole system, trying to get the things out of the door sooner. So that's one of the things that we tend to forget you know, because I think it's like the, this question going back to what do we want to optimize for individual efficiency or the flow efficiency, these things going to through the system soon. So yeah, that's one of the things that I think it's, it's really important to have in mind. and conversation and discussion that I don't tend to see very much uh, these days. And I, I can for sure relate to that and I'm sure many listeners too when it comes to storyboards, managing tickets. It's very easy to create new tickets and then end up with a long list and then you can, can kind of feel how hard it becomes to decide what needs to be worked on next and that you, you have a feeling that, as you mentioned, the overall throughput is going down for the team uh, as well when you have too many items that are on the backlog there's just too much to deal with right yeah there was also one thing that i think it, it's important to mention when you have less delays in the communication you have shorter feedback loops there's also this idea of how much engagement does this thing create uh, this, this way of working create right when you ha are able to get instantaneous feedback because in so the teams that they saw that were able to shorten these feedback loops and to get something to production in one day and get the feedback about it in the same day, the level of engagement and the like, the cognitive load is way less as well because they are staying in the context compared to when you pile up N items that are juggling at the same time inside of a team. The things take longer to get to the customers. Lots of the assumptions that we had initially have been invalidated because this thing was in flight for too long time. So you have a huge amount of rework again, scaling to the whole organization rework because lots of the assumptions have been invalidated. And when you have lots of the things going on, there's also, because of that fact as well, there's lots of uh, high likeliness that the assumptions are going, initial assumptions are going to be invalidated. Plus this cognitive load that is increased in the whole team. You know, if you work on one item versus when you work on five or 10 items as a whole team, juggling between these and this context switching calls that you're having every time that you need to do that is again when you scale it on organization level it's enormous right and plus the engagement tends to go down because the focus is kind of uh, affected in that sense okay dragon i have a final question for you a more personal one as the pandemic restrictions are easing in many parts of the world uh, what are you most looking forward to this year yeah it's a really great question i think like on a, on a personal level i would say traveling I really miss traveling and I really enjoy it. And in, I didn't even know that I would miss it so much. That's also a thing. I, I, I guess everyone, like uh, this whole situation with the pandemic made everyone aware how much um, it is kind of important for, for every person. And in like work-wise, I think uh, 
being able to work with, with other people face to face and, and getting to meet them in the office as well. I miss this part a lot. So to say, yeah, there's lots of joy that I feel in, in this sense. And uh, that's something that I'm really looking for. Yes, uh, I believe we're all looking forward to, to more personal connections, right? Thank you so much, Dragon, for being on the show with us today. I would encourage all listeners to check out his work. We will share his links where we publish the podcast, both on YouTube and the audio-only version. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dragon.